If you're able to stand, all of us, let's do so as we read Job 42, 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, I'm angry with you and your two friends. You have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Once you say this underlying section with me, start with four. Say four. You, together, have not spoken. God bless this word that it might penetrate our minds and our hearts. Would you just pour out your anointing? That's what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. (laughs) This is the third week of a series that uh, I've entitled, Don't Believe It. Let me summarize where we are. The first week, uh, I taught uh, that there is an assumption that some of us enter the world with, uh, and it is this. I can't make a difference in the midst of a toxic and broken world. That's an assumption that some of us bring. Everybody shout, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Uh, go back and see that first message I said to you that if you are a follower of Jesus, God calls and equips us not just to make a difference, but to be the difference. On last week, uh, we challenged another assumption that I know that many of us walk into this space with, and it is simply this, prayer is not for me, that it doesn't work for me. And uh, everybody shout, don't believe it. Don't believe it. it. Last week, we talked about uh, how while prayer is not all power, it doesn't give you everything you want. It is incredibly powerful and it is simple. God has shaped it so that you and I can participate. And if you practice, you might discover that prayer is indeed your superpower. That was last week. This week, I want to take on another assumption. This is an assumption that is often nurtured, uh, howbeit unintentionally, In the church, it is often conveyed from believer to believer. And uh, I'm going to say it in a formal sense, but but, but, but we we experience this in a variety of ways. Here it is. Here's the assumption that, that I can become spiritual enough to avoid pain and tragedy. Say it with me. I can become spiritual enough to avoid... Pain and tragedy. Everybody shout, don't believe it. No, you can't. Now, I want to take this on, and to some degree, this is why we're starting with the uh, last chapter of Job, looking at his friends led by Eliphaz. The next couple of weeks, I want to look at uh, their uh, assumptions that they were trying to teach Job, and here God says to them, when it was all said and done, I'm angry with you, because what you have shared about me to my servant Job is not accurate. If you've put forth some poor theology. Let me back into it this way. Uh, There is a uh, Christian therapist and author, very well known, Dr. Henry Cloud, recently wrote a book about 12 
uh, assumptions that are not biblical that is often found in the Christian community that is often harmful. And as a matter of fact, he says, if you're not careful, these assumptions will uh, cause you to go crazy. That's his title, actually, of the book. In other words, lose your mind. Everybody shout, lose your mind. And one of them is this notion that, that somehow I can reach a spiritual plateau that allows me to avoid suffering and tragedy in the world. It's not something that we actually want to hear. We would, we would like to believe that. He tells a story about one of his clients, Ted. He said Ted found himself sinking in the depths of depression and he got so bad that he started to question whether or not he was a Christian. And uh, he tried to respond by doubling down. He uh, listened to more and more Christian preaching on tape and I guess these days podcasts. He made sure he made it to church every day, sat through several uh, worship services, increased his devotional life early in the mornings and spent more time in prayer. He started memorizing scripture so that he might be able to speak God's word in and over his life. All of these things, by the way, are wonderful practices that, that we should do that facilitates and strengthen our faith. But the more he did these things, the more deeply depressed he became. So finally, he was forced to go see a professor. It happened to be Dr. Cloud. He was sharing with Dr. Cloud how he just didn't get it, that somehow uh, his faith had not worked when it came to his depression. And Dr. Klaus said, what do you mean you don't, you don't get it? What, what, what is it that, you know, depression, this is a, more likely a physiological thing. What, what, what are you talking about? Faith. He says, clearly, doctor, he says, if I was spiritual enough, if I had enough faith, if I was close enough to God, I don't think I'd be depressed. So therefore, it must be my fault. Now, as quietly as it kept, that is the belief, that is an assumption that a lot of us circulate around the church with, that there's some plateau that I can reach in my faith that, that, that allows me in some way or another to escape the great tragedies and pains of life. And I just want to say to you, listen, here's the deal. You want, you want to write this down? It's worth writing down. Faith in God does not eliminate your struggles in life. But faith in God will certainly help keep your struggles in life from eliminating you. It gives you the capacity. It doesn't stop you from being knocked down, but it gives you the capacity to get back up again. Hmm? That's faith. And so here we are looking at Job. And for those of you who, uh, this is exactly what's going on with Job. For those of you who may not be familiar with this story, let me just rewind and go back to chapter one and give you a quick summary of, of this person called Job. First of all, Job is depicted in chapter one, verse one of, of, uh, of the book as a spiritual giant. 
He's at the top of his spiritual game. The, the writer simply says about him that this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he avoided evil at all costs. He was, he was, a, he was, this, he was at the top of the spiritual game. He's, this is the, the Jewish way of saying he was walking closely with God. Or another way of saying it, he was a righteous man. And if you're not religious, you're, you're maybe righteous man and spiritual giant doesn't really uh, kind of resonate with you. Just say it like this. He was an exceptionally good guy. And then verses 2 through 3 uh, makes it clear that he was blessed. And we usually draw a straight line from that. And, uh, and it talks about how blessed he was. The, he had 10 kids, which represents an idea of family. He had uh, uh, thousands of livestock, which represented his wealth. And, 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 and it ends by saying he was the greatest, everybody shout, greatest, meaning based on his wealth and his reputation, the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, if you know anything about Job, most of the time if somebody says that you want to be like Job, the average instinctive answer is like, of course not. <laughs> but really, this initial description is a description that I think most people in Silicon Valley would go for. Right? Highly successful and wealthy and all of that. And blessed. Everybody shout bless. He's a righteous man. He was blessed. Now the narrative gets uniquely powerful because what the rest of the chapters are about is simply this, that being uh, righteous and blessed, being able to move in God's favor does not inoculate you against pain and tragedy. It just doesn't. So one day, shout one day, one day the, 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 the unexpected, which is how tragedy usually happens, uh, it, it, it comes uh, out of nowhere. One day the, the unexplainable, which is usually how tragedy happens in our lives, that, that when we ask the question why, there is no answer on this side of life. The unexpected, unexplained, just came out of nowhere, wiped out his kids, wiped out his wealth, wiped ultimately out his health, had these huge boils on him. And, and if you read the chapter very closely, you'll find out that this, this, this horrendous uh, a work of evil, if you will, uh, came out of the way it comes in our lives. Uh, there were some bad people who did bad things to the innocent, and on the other cases, the ecology acted in ways that didn't fit God's design, and and, 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 and lightning and, and hurricane, just like over in the Bahamas, came sweeping down. Cause havoc. And part of what the writer is trying to suggest is that, is that Job could have had all the faith in the world, but he could not inoculate himself. You know why? Because he was a uh, spiritual giant who was blessed to live in a world full of brokenness and evil. And if you walk around in a world like this, we all will be impacted at some point. So, his friend shows up, chapter 2. Everybody shout, friends. 
And the first thing I want to make clear is that his friends, they are really friends. Now, when you read what they did, you would say, we're friends like these who need enemies. <laughs> but I want to make the fact, fact point that genuinely, they love Job. Secondly, these friends were men of faith. I want to make the fact point that genuinely, they loved God and trusted God. So by the time we get to the end and figure out what they did wrong, here's what we learn. It's possible for us to have friends who really, really love us and people of faith who truly believe and trust God. It's possible for those type of friends to wound us. Especially when they try to explain what they can't explain. Now, before I leave this point, I want to make sure you write this down in your notes. Sometimes we are those friends. We're not trying to be wounding. We're trying to be helpful. We're trying to have the hard and tough conversation. But when we slip over into that area of trying to explain about God and the world that we really just can't explain, sometimes we can do more damage than good. So what this means is, first of all, if you have friends who have done that, people of faith who have done that, don't blame God for their error. Number two, because they actually loved you and was trying to do the right thing, cut them some slack and give them some grace. Now, the friends, they start off wonderfully. They do exactly what we ought to do when we find someone in grief and as, as, uh, as Job was. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 points it out clearly. First of all, they go to him. They go visit him. That is the right thing when someone you know and love is, is going through incredible pain. They, they went to see him. That was excellent. Secondly, when they saw him, the text says they started to wail and they started to cry and they made their emotions uh, and their grief uh, known to him. They wept with him. That's what you should do when you go with somebody, when you're hanging out with somebody who's going through great grief, dealing with tragedy, dealing with pain. Oh, they were doing the right thing. They were on the right road. Third thing is that they do that is exactly right. Is, is, is the text says they sat with him for seven days, totally quiet. Everybody said quiet. They didn't say anything. And the reason why they didn't say anything was because they realized, next verse, they realized that his, his grief was beyond words. That's exactly right. Sometimes the best thing you can do with somebody who's going through is just to show up. Come on now. Weep with them. Hold their hands. Pray with them. Just sit with them. If they need something done, a house clean, kitchen, uh, some grocery shop, go do that. They were on point. Everybody shout on point. The problem happens 
when they stop being silent. First thing that happens is that Job breaks the silence in chapter 3, and he spends an entire chapter just cussing. He's not trying to be politically correct, religiously correct. He's just dealing with the depths of his feelings, and he's just cussing. Cussing the day he was born. Just cussing. On. He's just like, I, I mean, he's just out. He's depressed, and he's just laying out. And what they should have done was created space for him to just be honest about his feelings because there's no real judgment one way or the other. He's just hurting. Let, the, let him bleed. Right? And, and you, just, you just carry him. No. Eliphaz Chapter 4 leads off, and uh, <laughs> Eliphaz tries to straighten Job out. When someone is in grief, that is not the time to try to straighten them out. By the way, let me just add this. If somebody's in deep grief and they say something that's theologically wrong, that's not the time to fix their theology. Just be there for them. So, Eliphaz. Here's uh, Eliphaz. He, oh, let me just put the point up there. Be cautious when you, be cautious about trying to explain the unexplainable. And especially be cautious about trying to explain the unexplainable with this statement, everything happens for a reason. Eliphaz starts off to try to explain what he had no idea that he was talking about. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And so... The assumption from which he argues is that everything happens for a reason. And the very first insight that we get from this is that when you tell somebody that everything happens for the reason, if you're not careful, the first thing that they will hear in the midst of that is, oh, so that probably means that my suffering and my pain and my tragedy is my fault. Everybody shout, my fault. My fault. This is what's happening with Ted. He's basically saying his suffering, his pain, is his fault. If he just had a little bit more faith, if he, could just, if he could just lean in and believe God's word a little bit more, life would just straighten up. It's his fault. The second thing is, when we tell somebody, uh, 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 look, <laughs> everything happens for a reason, the second thing inside of that is we, 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 we either think it's my fault or, or, or we'll go to this point, it's, it must be my sin. Everybody shout sin. As a matter of fact, Eliphaz actually says this in chapter 4, uh, verse 8. Here's what he says. Look at it. He's, he's in chapter 4, verse 8, basically, here's what he says. My experience shows me. This is, doesn't this sound like some people of faith we know my, based on my experience uh, uh, shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. And what he's saying is, hey, man, listen, I just want to tell you, based on my experience, and I'm looking at what's happening in your life, there must be more to the story than this. Yes, there is. Uh, uh, and therefore, it must be your sin. That's where you don't, you see, you, should have, you just went too far. There is more to the story, but you don't know what it is. You're not privy to it. So, this notion 
It's my sin. The second thing that, oh, let me just make this point. There are times when we do stupid stuff. And the stupid stuff creates crazy consequences. So, the, so let me not run over that. Listen, if you drank all night and get on a motorcycle and hustle down the expressway, have an accident, lose both legs, yes, that was avoidable. Right? You should not have done that. But, but Job is not in that context. Job is in the place of, uh, of a dear friend of mine that I knew several years ago who was a very wealthy guy who spent most of his life giving his money away and changing the world, making it better, who at the end of the day ended up with ALS, basically died suffocating. A believer. Job is like one of our elders who got a phone call in the middle of the day and said that her six-year-old granddaughter, who had cerebral palsy, accidentally died in the tub. Job is like one of my dear friends that I know who's been a mother of church for decades, praying people through and facilitating uh, 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 the means through which God would move in so many people's lives. And, and, and she discovered just not long ago that, that she's dealing with the early stages of, of dementia and kind of losing her way. None of that has to do with the sin that people have done. Now, it may have to do with how sin has broken the world and has ricocheted effects across the world, but it has nothing to do with the individual in that sense. Innocent. So, be careful by saying uh, everything has a reason because this person's thinking, is it my fault? Be careful because the other thing that people would think then is what you're suggesting then is that this tragedy is the doing of God. Everybody shout, the doing of God. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 9. Eliphaz, this is why God says, I got to correct man. I'm upset with you because you are inaccurate, man. You're way off the mark. Here's what he says. A, a, a breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his ankle anger. Yes, God can judge like that. But God was not judging Job. So, what's God doing? I had a young man I buried many years ago. Someone I loved. First name is Corey. He got shot out in cold blood. And I listened as some of the folks said to his mom, God never makes a mistake. Please be careful about using that. I had to correct this in the message. And I pointed at the casket and I said to uh, everybody, listen, God never makes a mistake, does not apply to this. Because the text says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But God comes to give life and that more abundantly. This is not God's doing. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens beyond God's intent. And God is weeping right along with the family. Some of you need to know. God is weeping right along with you. Be careful putting stuff on God. It's not God's doing. 
All right. Then help me here. If I've got to live in a world that is full of ups and downs, how, how my faith best serve me? Yes, let me just echo very loudly. Yes, we ought to. We ought, to, we ought to pursue God and, 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 and pray that God intervene and, and that God will give miracles. And, and yes, God does do miracles. I'm a, I'm a living witness that, that God does the impossible from time to time. And yet often, come on now, that those miracles are the, are the mountaintops. But between the mountaintops, we've got to live in the valley of, of struggle and up and down and disappointment. And yet that God that shows up on the mountaintop is still the God that says, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you in the miracle, and I'm with you when the miracle doesn't happen. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with this? Okay, a couple of quick points as we wrap this up. You want to get, you want to get this. Number one, God invites us uniquely through Jesus. Listen now. He invites us to trust him in the midst of the unexplainable. Say it with me. Say, trust him in the midst of the unexplainable. Here's the insight. Almost 20 years ago, Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, was the pastor of Saddleback Church, he wrote Purpose Driven Life, one of the all-time best sellers. Sent out a letter to all of us who are part of his network, to tens of thousands of people across the country, and here's what he said. He said, many of you have been praying for my wife, Kate, who was diagnosed with cancer. And I want to let you know that the doctor has said that there's nothing else more that they can do. And so, I thank you for praying. But we will surrender in this space and trust God. They were making preparations for our death. And in the same letter, I'll never forget it. He says, life is like a railroad track that has two rails. He says, one rail represents moments at which we declare our praises to God and we thank God for, for all the wonderful things that he's doing. And the other rail, at the same time, moving in the same direction, represents the cry of our heart that says, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. One person put it like this. Life is remarkably beautiful and life is remarkably hard at the same time. A few months came and went. Miraculously, Kay was healed. 20 years later, Kay is still by the side of her husband, serving and preaching. Stay with the same family. This giant of a family. Some great work across the world. He has a son. His name is Mark. Mark had suffered with mental health illness all of his life. Expressed itself in deep, dark depression. I'll never forget it. The morning I woke up, it was just after Easter, and, and, and saw it, made the news. 
that Rick Warren and Kay Warren's son, Mark, had taken his life. Rick will describe that, 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 that he doesn't understand why God did not answer the prayer and deliver Mark even while he's elated that God answered the prayer and delivered Cain. You see, this is part of the mystery that we have to live with when we, when we trust God, but, but we don't do it aimlessly. You know why? Because, because uh, uh, I think I can find it here. Uh, it's not on, it's, they don't have it on the screen. Let me read it to you. Because Paul says that because Jesus showed up and went through the cross and came out on the other side, here's what he talks about. And I think this is just remarkably, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Shout no. Despite all these things, we are more than conquerors in our, in, in, through Christ who loved us. And how are we more than conquerors? Because he came and, and lived among us. Come on now. And dealt with life the way we deal with it. And then went up on a Calvary's cross, a historical event, and died as dead as a doorknob. That is the proof of his love for you and for me, sharing in our infirmities. But then on the third day, gets up with all authority of heaven and earth in his hands. That's the proof that he has the last word. And so I don't know why God answers some prayers and doesn't answer other prayers. But this I understand. It's not because he doesn't love me. I just look at the cross and it tells me I am awesomely loved by almighty God. And I've got to trust him. That's why we have the cross and the resurrection to give us an impenetrable proof that he loves us. Even as he works amidst the unexplainable, he invites us. This is called faith, y'all. Trust him. So I got to trust him amidst the unexplainable. That's an invitation. Secondly, quickly, to navigate this world with faith, I've come to believe scripture that says that God is able to work everything towards the good. That's Romans 8, 28, you know, I've quoted all the time, for God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him, call his purposes. You've heard me say this before. This does not mean that God causes all things. What it means is that God says if you stay with him and work with him and don't give up on him, he will not allow your tragedy. He will not allow your suffering. He will not allow your pain to be wasted. He will work amidst it and he'll find a way to bring substance. You know, Corey, years later, there is in Roxbury Church a trauma center called the Corey Johnson Trauma Center. It has developed a remarkable technique using spirituality and faith and other therapeutic means to help hundreds and hundreds of people work through their trauma in 
the middle of Roxbury and it's so impactful that now they are replicating it in churches and faith communities across the country. Now, please don't say that God arranged for Corey to die so that this could happen. No! But since Corey died, come on now, God said to his mama and to his grandparents, just work with me. I won't, I, won't, I, I, I won't allow that to be wasted. I won't allow his life to be wasted. We'll work something good out of it. And then thirdly, I've already said it a moment ago. It's part of navigating is the believing that God has the last word. Paul writes, for I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed within us. The writer of Revelation says that there will come a day when all sorrow and all suffering and all death uh, will be gone and he will wipe away every tear from his eyes. Uh, 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 chapter 42 of Job where he gets everything back plus it's just the right way of saying that, that God doesn't just have the last word in life God has the last word over death come on now and, 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 and that with God it's, 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 it's all a transition to something great God has the last word but you know another way he has the last word through the church you see because as you go through your pain and he picks you up and as you go through your trials and he brings you through and as you go through your trouble and, and he walks with you through it guess what we then come together and we say to the world we dare not give up we are the proof that there is a living God who loves us. Come on. And we are the light in the midst of darkness that calls the world. That's my first message, y'all, that we can still be the difference in a toxic, broken world because we are God's people filled with his faith. And lastly, lastly, a woman by the name of Kate Bow wrote, 35, she was diagnosed with cancer. I think, I, let me tell you this. Tell the person next to you, hold on, hold on, hold on. I just got an email, I need to read it to you. I remember Corey coming to me about three weeks before he was killed. He had gone waywardly. But he came to church that day, late, but he made it. And he came back in the office, we talked and we prayed. And he said, Pastor, I, I, I want a different life. He said, I'm not sure what the future holds, but, 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 but I want to trust God. I said, so are you ready to make a recommitment? He said, yes. And, and so I, I led him to the prayer where he reaffirmed his faith in the God who showed up in Jesus, who conquered death, y'all ain't listening, and gives us eternal life. And I said, do you actually believe it? He says, yes, I believe it. And then he walked out of my office and he walked into ultimately that moment of being gunned down. You know what I told him at the funeral? I said, the thief comes to kill and he killed this boy. He came to steal and he stole this boy's bright future on earth. I said, and he also came to destroy, but he showed up three weeks too late. <laughs> Oh, 
here's what I'm trying to get you to see. At the end of the day, my whole purpose for being on the planet is to invite you, come on now, to put your life in the hands of he who is known as Jesus, who conquered death, come on, who offers eternal life. And when we find ourselves about to close our eyes, we will be comforted by knowing that he is with us even through the end of the age and into a brand new season he's with us in life with us in death with us in eternal life that's what makes us able to get up and rise up and speak up and fight for justice and be a light in the world shout hallelujah shout glory we are his people amen amen Come on, give God a hand praise. I'm glad to be a part of this people.